Father, we thank you for just a moment to catch our breath in your presence. Part of me doesn't even want to pray this prayer out loud because I know the healing work you want to do on people's souls sometimes happens in that silence and in that space that we avoid. God, I pray in our lives that we would create moments to just listen, to breathe, to receive. God, in this moment, no one is going to be changed because they look at me and listen to me for 40 minutes. But lives are forever changed where your spirit breathes through a willing vessel and where your people are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. So God, look across all of our locations. Look across this 8 a.m. gathering at 323 Airport Road right now and till the good soil, God. You know these people. You know their hearts. For those who have ears to hear, God, would you bear good fruit in their lives? For those who didn't come with ears to hear today, I pray that this moment is a moment of preparing, of removing distractions and obstacles, and readily opening our lives for your word to come and invade. God, have your way right now. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Doesn't that feel good? So we are like, no. If you can't tell, in the last couple of weeks, we are intentionally trying to add more moments of reflection and stillness in our gatherings, just feeling like we don't need to spend an hour and 15 minutes just full blast, that sometimes it's good to pull back and just breathe. But when we were about to do it, Michael Fagan, who was leading right here, he's in a medical field, and he teaches our emotionally healthy relationships class, and he was just telling me about the science behind stillness and solitude. He said, you'll tell how uncomfortable our people are in it, by how long it takes for the first person to cough. I'm dead serious. He said, he said no one really who just coughed, and it was about 30 of you, um, no one really just coughed because they actually had to cough. Their body was reacting to the discomfort of the silence. And he said, every time we do a class, the goal is to get longer and longer without a cough. You guys think I'm joking right now. I'm, I'm so serious. And some of you are like, what if I really have to? The judgment that's going to be present in the room. It's okay. You may. But it was so interesting a couple weeks ago at the 1130 when we just had this stillness and silence before the Lord because it was like a coughing fit broke out that we haven't seen. That if it would have happened in 2020 when we regathered, there would have been a lot of really, really, really uncomfortable people. So we want the presence of God, and I have a word to preach to you today. I believe God's going to speak through, but more than anything, I want us to check our hearts, make sure we're available. We've been in the Gospel of Luke talking about the invitation of Jesus, the idea being Jesus is inviting us into the life that is truly life, life to the full. He's not inviting us to believe a set of doctrines and give up all the pleasures that exist in life. He's inviting us into the greatest life that we can say yes to and true pleasures that will endure for eternity. And this has been a powerful series. Last Sunday, talking about the prodigal son and experiencing what happened in this room was so unique. It was so significant and special. But every week, we're hitting these 
well-known stories from the life of Jesus and issuing the invitation of Jesus. And I'm like, this is powerful. It's convicting and it's encouraging and it's amazing. But one thing I want to acknowledge is that it's not powerful and encouraging for everyone in the room or everyone online. For a lot of you, these weekly reminders of the invitation of Jesus are less an encouragement and more regretful. Because a lot of you have spent decades of your life ignoring and spurning the invitation of Jesus and putting it off and getting these explicit invitations in your face every week from Jesus's life is just like a ready reminder of how many times you've said no or not maybe maybe you haven't said no maybe you've just settled maybe you haven't taken Jesus at all that he's offering you in his life and so we're over here going this is so encouraging God's moving but for a lot of you you're going this is actually discouraging because it's a reminder of what I wish I would have said yes to 20 years ago or 30 years ago, and I just want to acknowledge that. But I also want to encourage you and tell you that the invitation of Jesus is less like an invite to a party that you check yes or no to, and it's more like surfing. Any surfers in the room? Anybody been surfing at all in your entire life? Okay, coolest people in the room, look around. (laughs) Find them in the Bible drawer if they're single. They're the ones you want to aim at, okay? Cool people (laughs) surfing. I've never been, shocker adventure, um, but I, I would like to. The whole idea behind surfing, though, is swimming out with a board and waiting on the right wave to experience life. But the beautiful thing about the ocean is just because you miss the most perfect wave you could have taken doesn't mean another one won't come right behind it. And I just say that to say, don't let the invitations of Jesus that you have scorned keep you from saying yes to the one that's right in front of your face right now. Do not let decades of settling and saying no keep you from what might happen right now. Because in this moment, right now, we got an invitation from Jesus. In fact, today, we're telling the story of the most explicit invitation Jesus ever gave a human being and the most clear moment in Jesus' ministry where someone point blank walked away and said no to the invitation. And we get to deal with the story of the rich young ruler in a way that I believe will invite you if you still have breath in your lungs to step into the more of God. So you may have missed it a hundred times before. You may have missed it all year in 2022, but it's a new month. It's October and it feels amazing outside. And we're going to let a new month breathe new energy into our sails spiritually. If you brought your Bible, hold it up at all of our locations. Hold it up high. Hold it up. Hold it up higher if you're single. Even higher, everybody else pull it down. Okay, I I haven't been given the 8 a.m. this opportunity. I've been giving others. Y'all can look around. You're like, it's too early for this. Okay, come back to a later gathering. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 18. And as much as it is possible for you, I want to beg and plead with those of you who grew up in church to wipe your memory of what you have heard about the rich young ruler in the past. If you grew up in church, this is a story you were probably familiar with, and I think there's a tendency to think you already know the depths of this passage. I promise you where I'm going to be taking this today is different than what you've probably heard in the past. And that's not because I have something better to say. It's because this is a passage that I have been looking deeper into since it was preached in our church in January of 2021. Which for those of you who were there that day, you know that was a day that marked our church forever for multiple reasons. 
the last time this story was preached, it just caught my attention in a way that I wanted to study it and fully glean from it what God is saying through this interaction. And where I arrived at was so different than most of the teaching I've heard on this passage in the past. So we're going to read it all. Luke chapter 18, verse 18, all the way to verse 30. If you're there, say I'm there. A certain ruler asked him, that's Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have left all we had to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Wow. Arguably the most tragic walk away from an invitation from Jesus that we have in the recorded scriptures. And within the context of this story, we have Jesus during his lifetime making the claim that it is physically easier for a camel to travel through the eye of a small needle than for someone who is rich to enter into the kingdom that he came to initiate. Here's the really bad news today. This interaction is not just about a guy who lived 2,000 years ago. This interaction is about us. If you're here within the sound of my voice, the overwhelming majority of you, just by proximity, are in the top 1% of humanity who has ever lived in regards to wealth, quality of life, access to medical care, food. You are are, by definition, rich. And I know the tendency to hear that is to go, yeah, 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 but I mean, I'm like struggling to pay my bills. Like that guy, that guy's seriously rich and could, you know, probably give me some advice about stuff. But like, it's like, we always put it off on somebody who has more, someone who has an abundance. And I do believe if you are like really rich, like you really are wealthy, even among a crowd like this, I do think you should have an elevated level of focus on a passage like this, but do not Put off your attention on this passage like it's for someone else. No, this is for us in this moment. And there's a really convicting word in Jesus' invitation that we've got to receive and we've got to acknowledge that it will be hard for us to receive it if we do not receive it with spiritual eyes and ears. But typically, when this passage is preached, there is a predictable arc to how it is going to be taught. And how I've heard it taught, if you grew up in church, you probably heard it taught like this, is that the rich young ruler was trying to please God through obeying the law. 
And in his interaction with Jesus, Jesus exposed the idols of his heart and showed him that it's not about how many rules you follow that get you to God. It's about whether or not you've received the grace of God by faith and come to saving knowledge of God. What Jesus is doing is taking the rich man's works-based righteousness, flipping it on its head, teaching him what grace is, and he won't receive it. You hear that, and you're like, that sounds awesome. <laughs> By grace, through faith, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's good teaching. That's sound, biblical, seems like it's what's happening in this story. But I want to argue today, and I want you to go with me on this. I want to argue, number one, that that is not at all what is happening in this interaction. And number two, so much more is happening than just that. Jesus is pinpointing something so much deeper than, yeah, it's actually not adherence to the law. It's actually grace. And for you to get to grace, we got to talk about this. It is so much deeper. And the reason why I argue that from the top is because of what happens at the very beginning of this interaction. Look at verse 18. It says, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now we have Stories about the rich young ruler in the book of Matthew and in the book of Mark. So we know he's kind of arrived at a certain level of status in his life. He's got wealth, he's got youth, and he's got power. The perfect combination to be culturally elite in any day based on the values of worldly thought. Okay, this guy's got it all. But he comes up to Jesus, and Mark's gospel tells us he doesn't walk up to Jesus. He bows before him. And he says, I got a question. What must I do to inherit eternal life. Now look at that question. If you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, go with me on this. You know, this is the dream question. This is what you want someone who's lost to ask you. This is teed up. Anybody play volleyball? This is like a set that is right by the net. All you have to do is jump and hit that thing. That is all you got to do. And the point is over. What must I do? So you're like, even, even somebody who's new to your faith, you're like, whoa, yeah. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, please know, eternal life is not just like die and go to heaven one day. That phrase eternal life is interchangeable in this story with the kingdom of God and with salvation. It's about life in the age to come being experienced right here and right now through proximity to God. What, but he says, what must I do? So you know what the answer is. Do? You don't do anything. It's done based on Jesus, and eternal life comes by his perfect life, sacrificial death, victorious resurrection, and the power of the Holy Spirit to live within you, to seal you so that one day you know you're going to heaven forever. This is so easy to answer that question, except for the fact that the Son of God doesn't answer it that way. In fact, he doesn't even come close to answering it that way. It's not like he said, well, he said something like that. No, no. When Jesus sought to answer the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' answer was law-keeping. You know the commands. Do this, do this, do this. Paint a picture of your life of the ultimate command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I just want that to get your attention a little bit. Why doesn't Jesus give the answer that Jesus is supposed to give? In fact, if you, if you heard anybody else say this other than Jesus, you would call it heresy. But because it's Jesus, you can't. He's like, oh, well, even though I think that's wrong, he can't be wrong. So I guess I got to adjust what I think about what he said. You know the commands. And then the guy says, all these I've kept since I was a boy. And Jesus doesn't disagree with him. You think in, in your mind, you're like, okay, yeah, you've never lied. 
okay, you've, you, whatever. No, Jesus is like going with him on this. And some people tell this story in such a way, it's like, well, Jesus is intentionally confusing him. Oh, yeah, that sounds like something the Son of God would do to someone who earnestly falls at his feet and wants an answer to a question. Like, no, that is not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is opening our minds to something bigger. And when he says, I've kept these since I was a boy, and Jesus goes, okay, here's what he says next. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus says, you still lack one thing. And then he gives him three things to do. You still lack one thing. Here's what you need to do. Sell your stuff. Give it to the poor. Two. And you'll have treasure in heaven. Okay? Then come, follow me. In other words, here's the one thing you lack. Get rid of your attachment to your stuff. Bless other people. You'll, you'll receive treasure in heaven. And then come follow me. And if you're following the progression of his words... There should be something on the back end of follow me that shows you what you receive by father following me. You know, you know what that is? The one thing the man lacks. Jesus himself. Then come, follow me, and you'll get that one thing you lack. You got zeal, you got obedience, you love the law, and you love the Lord. But you don't have me. And you can't have me unless you create some space. And the space that you need is the stuff that holds you back. And I don't believe it's just because money had this guy's heart from a material mindset. I believe Jesus knew money will get in the way and tie this guy up from what it would look like for him to follow me life on life. Jesus did not invite everyone to follow him life on life. In fact, some people would ask and Jesus would say, go back to where you live, go back to where you're from. You're not invited in this sense. You're invited to take it where you live. This guy's getting a front row seat. Come on, let's go. But there's no way you're going to be able to handle that journey while all this stuff is weighing you down. And here's the principle that I believe Jesus is getting us to. Please, y'all, it's early. I know. You need to think deeply about what I'm about to slide across the table to you, okay? Here's what's happening. The rich young ruler's ability to receive the grace of God was connected to his willingness to release his attachment to worldly things. The rich young ruler's ability to receive the grace of God was connected to his willingness to release his attachment to worldly things. Grace needed to invade the rich young ruler's life, but not by replacing his theology for law-keeping with grace. By him understanding that grace was his on the backside of surrender. This is why believing in grace is not enough. If the goal of this whole thing was just to get us to agree to enough theological convictions that, yes, I believe in the grace of God. I believe that Jesus died and rose again. Like, yes, intellectually speaking, I'm in agreement. Then this story would make no sense. But Jesus is going, that's not enough because it's not just about intellectually agreeing to a set of doctrines. It's about heartfelt worship where Jesus becomes your treasure and the attachments have to fall in order to receive. And so it's one thing for this to be the case for an interaction that happened 2,000 years ago, but theologically speaking, it's equally as true for you in this moment. So let's make it that true. Why don't we edit the line and say it this way? Your ability to receive the grace of God is connected to your willingness to release your attachment to worldly things. This is about you. This is about me. If that line is too long and confusing, here's a really simple way to say it. 
You can't receive and treasure Jesus while your hands are full. You can't receive and treasure Jesus while your hands are full. There's got to be a space created. And for this guy, in this moment, Jesus pinpoints the exact area where space will be created enough to take in what is his. And for us, in this moment, I believe that same conviction on top of your conversion has to become true. I know y'all writing down a lot, and this is a heavy message, but y'all need to look at me right now. At Auburn Community Church, we have so many Christians who are converted, but not surrendered. Converted, I believe it, not surrendered. It's yours, Lord. And I'm arguing today that the rich young ruler was converted. He's convinced. Follows the law to the nth degree, which once again, I got to remind us, because we have such a lawless mindset about the Old Testament, not a bad thing that this guy's a lawkeeper. It's actually awesome. It means he's devout. It means he's righteous. It means he cares about pleasing God. That's good. And the fact that he recognizes something's missing. And he recognizes that Jesus is the one who has the thing that's missing. This guy is right on track. We give the rich young ruler such a bad rap. Like, look at this guy obsessed with his stuff and his perfection based on his performance. Guy needs a gospel message. No, maybe he has a lot to teach you about what it means to be serious about your faith. This guy's in. He's like, I'm in. I'm converted mentally. I'm I'm there. You are from God. And I care about pleasing God, so tell me the answer. He was converted, but he wasn't surrendered. And that's because there is a difference between insight in your mind and change in your life. There is a difference between resonance and obedience. Something resonating with you does not mean the byproduct will be a lifestyle of obedience over time. Obedience has to be fueled by surrender, and surrender comes when you decide it's no longer this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. It's now I want to become all flame. This was one of the many revelations that took place for me when I was on sabbatical. I read some ancient works. One of them is... uh, the sayings of the desert fathers. I didn't read all of this, but there was a time in church history where the church was becoming corrupted by culture and by the world, and there was a group of monks who retreated to the desert to seek the presence of God, and what came out of that movement uh, was a lot of satire and writings about different things, a lot of things that are no doubt questionable theologically, but a lot of like really, really, really cool stories of what God was doing through a group of people who were bold enough to pull out of a compromised church Actually, I believe that movement set the table for what happened in the Reformation 500 years ago, but you didn't come to hear church history unless like five of you are in here like, no, say more, I'll say less. But there's a little interaction among the Desert Fathers where a young monk comes to an older one and he says, what am I missing? Similar to this story in the Bible. He's like, I fast, I pray, I have my, my disciplines down. Like I'm, I'm, I'm checking all the boxes. It's where a lot of you are today. I'm doing the stuff. What's missing? And the legend has it that the older monk turned and lifted his hands toward heaven. And flames came out of his hands. And he looked at the younger monk and he said, why not become all flame? It was as if he was saying, 
God's got like little portions of who you are. But the power that you're lacking is in just shove it all into the middle and let Jesus have it all. Why not? Why not become awfully? That, by the way, that is what Jesus is doing with the rich young ruler. I believe that the tone and the feel of this interaction was invitation, not conviction, not hard. I believe Jesus is like, no way, this guy's awesome. In fact, in the other stories of the rich young ruler, not this one, but the one in Mark, it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus wanted this so bad for this guy. It wasn't a, let me show this guy what's wrong with his theology. And it wasn't a, this guy's never going to really surrender and give away his stuff. Jesus was inviting him into more. And I believe that's why right after the rich young ruler went away sad, Jesus goes, how hard it is for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I don't think that was Jesus just putting out a dogmatic teaching for rich people to feel bad. I think that was him and his frustration, godly frustration going, man, if they could just see what's in front of them. That stuff's got your heart so bad that you're so blinded to what is right here. And if you knew the invitation that was in front of you right now, oh, think about what this guy could have seen. Think about what he could have been a part of. Probably have books of the Bible named after rich young ruler. We don't know what his name was. I was going to call him something, but I don't want to guess. This guy, man, Of all the things that's in front of him, it looks so hard to lay this stuff down, but what's actually happening is the key to his eternal happiness. That's why he went away sad. Because people who are partially surrendered to Jesus are always somewhat sad. People who are partially surrendered to Jesus are always somewhat sad. You want to know why I know that? Not just because he walked away sad, but because that's me and that's you so often. Think about it. When you do hold on to your stuff, hold on to your way, hold on to whatever attachment you have to the things of this world, how joyful does that make you? Do you just go, I'm so glad I got to keep this and still get Jesus? No, there's a part of you that becomes compromised. And there's a part of you that walks around in your daily life and hesitates in your prayer life. Because you know, on some level, there's something about your life that hasn't been set on fire. There's something about where you are. And it makes you overwhelmed with sadness. But then, and I've only tasted this in part, when you're in that space where you are full flame and where you're like, it's, it's, it's all there. I, I'm so done with half. I'm so done with 70%, 80%. I believe some of you in the room, you got like, if your life was a house, 90% of the rooms belong to Jesus. But there's this one, there's this one corner that's still yours. There's this one spot that's like, ah, uh, you, you can't go there. When you do, get your soul to that place. And it's so hard to actually see it and get there, but you're like, all right, it's, it's totally you. All surrendered, you can have it all. You have never experienced a happiness like that feeling. You've never experienced a joy. Not only does it simplify your life, it clarifies your purpose. It simplifies your life to go, this is who I am, this is what I'm about. But it clarifies in a day where you go, I don't have to make the decision between flesh and spirit, world or church, Jesus or me. I have decided to become a living sacrifice And on the other side of that, there is so much joy and happiness that is the eternal life that Jesus is offering in this moment. So let's talk about what it would look like to get there. Practically speaking, what does it mean 
to go full surrender. Some of the kids these days are calling it full send. It means like it's out there. It is what it is. We're all at different points in our journey. Some of you haven't said yes to Jesus initially, and some of you are realizing in this sermon that you did say yes to Jesus initially, but you've never said yes like this. You've never gotten to this place. What does it look like for you? Does it look like selling all of your material possessions, giving those funds to the poor, and following Jesus for the rest of your life? Hear me say this so clearly. No. It does not look like that. For you. In fact, I have known people who have made that decision and live to regret it, going, I may have read this wrong. Because I believe this call on the rich young ruler's life, and watch this, I'm not saying this to make the teaching easier on you, trust me. Jesus has that equal level of devotion in mind for your life, trust me. But I'm saying this contextually. The reason why I say no is because I don't see the Son of God in flesh and blood standing in front of you, inviting you to follow him, go where he goes, sleep where he sleeps, stay where he stays. Now, if God calls you to that individually, more power to you, that's, that's amazing. But to teach that Christianity is about the total removal of anything that looks like worldly wealth for the sake of the kingdom spreading, that's dangerous and borderline abusive to take something like this and take it to mean that. So what does it mean if it doesn't mean selling my stuff? It means think about what it would look like to sell everything you own and go follow Jesus. And your lifestyle should reflect that level of devotion in every area. That I really have a perspective about my stuff that says it is 100% his. I'm just a steward in the meantime. But I feel that same way about my body, about my sexuality, about my time about my attention, about my devotion, that level of surrender is whatever attachments I have that are removing my ability to be openly surrendered to you, that's what I want to do. I got two questions to ask, and then I promise we'll, we'll sit in this for a second. What attachment must be released for you to fully surrender? What attachment must be released for you to fully surrender? I really don't want this sermon to be about five different things that you need to surrender because if that is the case for you, that might be true, but you won't do anything about it if your mind is on that many things. If you're going, oh, it's this and this and this and this, start with one. What is one radical step that Jesus is calling you to make? And here's how you know which step to actually take today. It's the step that would cause the most amount of openness to intimacy with God. It's the thing that's blocking you the most from experience, experiencing more of Jesus one-on-one -on -one and living for his purposes in the world. So what is an attachment? An attachment is something that has compromised you from within. For some of you, it's the relationship that you are currently in. For others of you, it is your addiction to wealth and greed and more. For others of you, it's your phone and social media. For others of us, it's a substance or a habit or the way we're spending time. But what attachment is it that... In the light of who Jesus is, I need to fully surrender and lay down practically. And I want to challenge you. Don't just find the area. Equate it with what you need to do practically. Jesus, extremely practical teacher. What did he tell the man to do? Sell it. Give it away. Come follow. I want you to hear the voice of God for your life individually saying, throw it away. Break it off. Remove it completely. 
Take 30 days off. Whatever it is for your unique situation, put a practical step on the other end of the attachment so that you actually have a roadmap to go, this is what surrender looks like. This is what setting it on fire looks like. When you set something on fire, you do not have the intention of picking it back up again. You do not have the intention of going, I'm going to come back to that after. No, it's like it, that is full send. Like we said, that is yours, and I am ready to fully surrender in this moment. That's number one. Number two, and then we're finishing real quick today, is exalting and enjoying Jesus, your version of eternal life. Is exalting and enjoying Jesus, your version of eternal life. I believe this story of the rich young ruler is about Jesus redefining that phrase, eternal life. Eternal life is not primarily about escaping hell. It is about treasuring Christ. To be a Christian is to treasure the glory of Jesus. And so I want to ask the question, when you think of eternal life and you think of what God is offering you, don't think, I prayed the prayer, not going to hell, going to heaven. Think, do I treasure and value Jesus and desire him more than anything else? And if I don't, the prayer is so simple. God, would you give me eyes to see him as beautiful? Would you give me an affection for him because I don't have it within my own self? I promise you, the Holy Spirit will say yes to that prayer. But we have to redefine the invitation of Jesus as the invitation into the thing you really want. That's why the passage ended with Peter going, well, hold on. If it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, how is anyone going to be saved? With man, that's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And Peter's like, I just want to make sure I've covered all my bases. We've left a lot of stuff to follow you. And Jesus is like, you will not fail to receive even more in the age to come. The invitation of Jesus is not come and die, lose everything. It's come and die, lose everything, comma, live and gain even more. What am I gaining? A lot of possessions eternally. Everlasting life, fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's going to be awesome. But the best part is him. Just today, as Jason was singing, my gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. I just, I just had a lot going on this week. And it was like, that's, that's all I need at any given moment is to behold the beauty of who he is and experience eternal life right here and right now. Because life in the age to come begins now for those of us who know Jesus. You know, when Jesus himself defined eternal life, his definition was not to believe that I died and rose again and I'm coming again, to escape hell, to have the cross cover your sins and to come see me one day when you die. That is not what he said the night before he died. He said this in John 17, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you want eternal life? He's here. And knowing him is not just believing in him. It is treasuring him. How do I treasure him? I love the combination of words. Exalt and enjoy. Lift and delight. You 
love you. That's eternal life. And for a lot of you, you have never had that. And it's not because you don't want it. And it's not because God won't give it. It's because your hands are full. Jesus graciously, he'll wait, he'll be so patient, he'll send 15 more waves your way. In fact, this is totally me just reading into the future. It doesn't have to be true. I fully believe when Jesus rose from the dead and the early church was spreading that the rich young ruler was among the early church. Because you don't just give one chance. God's so gracious. And in this moment, you're getting one, but what's in the way is your stuff. And maybe he didn't sell it and give it all away when he got an explicit invite from Jesus, but maybe when he heard that same Jesus that he bowed before was crucified and risen, maybe Jesus even appeared to him after he rose from the dead, I don't know. What will it take for you to lay it all down? You have this moment, you have this opportunity. Let's get our communion supplies out right now. Every week we remember the sacrifice of Jesus by remembering the body and the blood. If you didn't get one, just raise your hand right where you're at. Some of our team uh, will come get one to you. A couple in the middle right here. It might take a little effort to get inside to where they are, but uh, let's make sure we get them one. This is a moment every week in our church where we remember that what Jesus did for us on the cross, we could never do for ourselves. But I really want this time to be a time of reflection. You just heard a word that requires a response. She needs one too. So take the time to weigh it. Some of our team is gonna play a hymn. You still, you still missed her. She's like, please see me right here. Sorry, it's dark in here. Uh, I asked our team to play an old hymn over us. I wanna ask that we just sit in this moment and reflect for a few minutes. We're definitely gonna end singing, but as always, husbands, pray over your wives. Let's enjoy this moment in the presence of God, and then we'll sing together.